a second. Welcome in to the 20th episode of the Neither Here Nor There podcast. I am one of your two hosts, Daniel Greer, of course, and with me, as always, is my dear good friend, 4,000 miles away, uh, Stephen Kilby. Stephen, how are you, my friend? Acknowledge yourself. <laughs> I'm here. Happy New Year, Daniel. Happy New Year. How are you, sir? Happy New Year. It is January 5th. This episode will be aired the 6th which is a Friday. I'm good. It's been a busy but good couple of weeks. I'm back back in Charlotte after being home for the holidays. I'm <clears throat> back in kind of my normal routine. Um, it's cold. It's no longer Christmas. It's just winter time. Um, American football is sadly winding down. Uh, that's about it. Um, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's The weather's horrendous here. It's rained almost nonstop since uh new year it's just horrible horrible ever and even over new year's eve it was terrible as well so i've been sitting inside a lot watching the rain um pour down the side of the windows in the last few days but other than that i'm really good i'm really good it's it's it feels like we only recorded a minute ago and yet that whole christmas period has happened since we last spoke (laughs) i know i was back at my parents house for eight days um we've had christmas and new year since we last recorded but you're right it does feel like it's not been too long um what uh what's your favorite christmas gift that you got Ooh. um i give two uh, three nominations actually um i got um a really nice brand new wallet with a set of air tags from carolyn that are like personalized with engravings on because she knows i always lose stuff and forget stuff so i now have air tags on all my key bags and items and my wallet now so even i won't be able to lose my wallet which is quite a thoughtful gift i thought um my parents got me a steam deck like a portable oh. um games console like a pc which is <clears> amazing uh, so i've been using that a little bit and it'll be I'm sure it'll be used to death on flights in the coming months. Um, so that's been amazing. And then my boss got me um, a a book that is about the weight of a grand piano, uh, which is the complete 100-year history in pictures of the Le Mans 24 Hours. It must be about 3,000 pages, and it's about A2 size. It's abs- It's an absolute rock of a book. Um, so I've been flicking through that, which is an amazing, amazing book to, to look through. Um, and then, of course, I got a shout out the, the wonderful present that you got me as well. The uh, the Tennessee Volunteers scarf, which will be coming with me to America when I leave on Saturday. Because I'm sure it'll be cold in Florida because it always is in January. <laughs> yeah, it's not cold in Florida in January. But bring your scarf. That sounds good, especially... You can wear that beautiful Tennessee orange around all oh, those awful, yeah. awful Florida Gator fans. Um, yeah, that, that would be much appreciated. But um, I know you <laughs> like scarves, so you're welcome. Um, and air tags. That's great because you do <laughs> lose stuff. <laughs> How about you? What was your highlight? <clears throat> um, well, I, I drive an older truck, which I love. Um, it's you know, I've had it for years now, six and a half years um or longer than that anyways um that's scary (laughs) i I know but i I don't have apple carplay 
Um, so I got from my parents, I got an Apple CarPlay uh, device. It, it you know, and it sits on your dashboard. So that's that's really cool and it's really useful. I've been using it all the time already. Um, oh nice. So, yeah, so that that was good. I got a few books, a stack of books. I got much needed clothes um and even bought myself a few things and you know before this call i was telling you about the weighted vest i bought with a gift card i got for christmas uh to work out in i've been using that um yeah it was a it was a good christmas um but it just it went by too fast um yeah it always does as it always does um yep and you know i was home my parents anniversary is on the 27th of December, so I actually got to third wheel with them and spend their anniversary with them, which was fun. Um, and believe it or not, there is a new Indian restaurant in Bristol, and wow. we went there last week, and it's really good. I mean, it's as good as any Indian I've had. And wow, uh, that's high yeah. praise. Yeah, it was it was really good. Um, so that was really fun. To, did you ever go in the Bristol Mall, like when you were? visiting me a long time ago that's not the same as the place with the bass pro shop outside no no the mall was completely indoors um no i think you've driven me past it and isn't it derelict didn't it close yeah. well so the mall closed and now it's going to be a hard rock casino and resort so oh you were telling me about this is it open well, part of it is um, the casino is open to an extent, and then they're building the hotel portion, and it's huge. It's like five or six stories high. I mean, it looks like something you would see in like a major resort town. And wow. yeah, it's really cool. But anyways, that Indian restaurant is near there, so that made me think of that and made me wonder if you'd ever gone into the mall before, you know, because I know you were you were visiting when that mall was still in existence almost a decade ago so it made me made me think yeah no i don't i don't think we ever went in there but i i remember you driving me past it and pointing it out but no i'm pretty sure i never went inside so i'd be interested to see what it's like when it's fully complete yeah it looks like it's going to be really nice i mean like i don't know much about casinos or gambling but hard rock is like kind of one of the main ones along with like caesars and um some of those and i think there's going to be restaurants in it and you know it's 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 going to be kind of the real deal the real mccoy so it'll be cool um super but, yeah but um yeah uh other than that i didn't really do much while i was back there you know i was working most of the week between christmas and new year's from my parents house and then um you know just hanging out with them so not too much to report back from uh, my trip back to God's country. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you have the fact of the fortnight for tonight, don't you? Yeah. So um, as I've been, it kind of links in with my thoughts to open the podcast, but I've been absolutely engrossed in Killing England, the book that you bought me, I think two years ago, um, which I'm finally got, getting around to reading. Um, which is a really nice, very digestible, um, almost complete history of the American Revolution, really. Start, starts off, you know, before the whole thing kicks off with a lot of really nice context. And it's now just, uh, you know, I'm f cozing in on the 40% mark 
of the book. And yeah, the Declaration of Independence has been signed. The war is very much underway. Um, and I'm absolutely loving it, Daniel. It's an amazing book, so well written um, that I can't genuinely can't put it down. I've been demolishing it on every time I've had an opportunity on a train ride or um, reading before bed every night. I've been chipping away at it and really enjoying it. So the fact that the fortnight comes from um, something I read in there, and that is that when the Declaration of Independence was signed and officially all, there is some minor controversy about that, isn't there, Daniel? That it wasn't really necessarily July the 4th. It could have been earlier because of the way that the voting took place is what it kind of suggests. But July the 4th is the kind of the official date of Independence Day. And... What amazed me is that when the declaration was signed, um, the King of England, King George, was notified within four days of it being signed by his general, General Howe, who was um, effectively guiding the Americans when the Navy turned up to uh, New York and the fighting started on Long Island. And it doesn't actually say how, but it was pretty amazing to me that within four days of the Declaration of Independence being signed um, in the 1700s, no less, that you could get that sort of information across the Atlantic that quickly. I genuinely have been racking my brains and I, and I will search it at some point because it is pestering me now. But how possibly could he have found out so quickly? Yeah, I <laughs> I, I've been trying to, ever since you told me that the other night, <clears throat> I've been trying to figure that out too, and I can't think of how, because, I mean, there was no electricity, so no telegraphs, there were no steam engines, you know, the the ships were powered by sails at the time, so I, I don't know, I, I wish I knew, but that is a interesting fact of the fortnight, and it's sadly one that we can't provide more information to our listeners on, isn't it? <laughs> no, but it's... Just the fact that it's that news at that time could spread that fast. And I think it then said that it was then published um, in an English newspaper, which I think was the London Chronicle at the time, on August the 8th. So really not that long. So it was so the king was made aware in four days and it spread to the wider public via the press within a month, basically. Mm. Uh, which is yeah and it was print and the and of sort of effectively a replica of the entire declaration was reprinted in the newspapers in the uk which again is it's amazing that they could do that yeah it is and i i can't even begin to shed more light on to how that was possible but that's certainly interesting and i love the fact that you love that book um i've not read that one but I've read other books in that series, like Killing Kennedy, Killing Lincoln, um, Killing Reagan, which, of course, Ronald Reagan didn't die. Um, Killing Patton's another one. There's a Killing Jesus. There, there's so many in that series. And every single one of them that I've read has been very, very easy to just, like you say, like you said, digest. It's it's engaging. You know, it's written in a good way that makes it almost read like a novel like it's very suspenseful almost i feel mm. no it, it is it's just it's so um digestible is the, probably the best way to explain because it's a really heavy topic and there's so much to it and there's so many key players 
involved and there's so much happening and the chronology of it is a bit of a nightmare because I guess part in part because of the way a war back then was was conducted where news spread slower so things were happening at strange times and there was a lot of overlaps wasn't there in things starting and ending and um you know just just in general the whole thing being organized properly was just it just seems like a nightmare reading through it just trying to organize an army and send you know and reporting back across the atlantic when you know there isn't electricity it just beggars belief how they did it but it's just so well written it's so approachable for someone like me who didn't study it at school and only has a basic knowledge of that time period essentially through spending time with you and going to um you know we went to south carolina didn't we, we went to was it king's mount was it king's mountain national park yeah king's mountain yeah yeah and that was and that's that was kind of my first real introduction certainly in museum although we didn't weren't able to go in the museum where we but you effectively acted as a museum while we were walking around um <laughs> pointing out everything to me but um that was my first real introduction to the American Revolution because we just don't study it over here. So unless you go out of your way to learn about it, you know, people just aren't aware. So it's really yeah. good to be able to properly get immersed in it. And the best thing about it is it gives you a really good sense of the time period as well as just the facts. It's not just a list of this is what happened on this day. This is the casualties. This is, you know, this is a map and this is where the movements were um you know it's very it's very descriptive not overly descriptive but it's just really entertaining and that's the way that a lot of history books like this should be written you know we can't you me and you i'm sure over these have read some pretty dry non-fiction history books that are so detailed you know commendable for their level of detail but just written in a way that just isn't very doesn't make you want to pick it up and carry on yeah, and it's like I think too many histories and biographies get bogged down in the minute, uh, mm. the minute. Um, you know, like I've been reading this three-part biography. Um, I've read the first two in the three of the three uh, on Theodore Roosevelt, and they're good, but it just it gets bogged down in the day-to-day too much, you know. And it's like mm. I, I think broad strokes sometimes are better. And I think that's a good thing about the book you're reading is it's more of a broad stroke type of mm. book. And it, it's so interesting to me because, like, <clears throat> you know, in, in the United States, like, we know and passionately care about our revolution. It's it's a big part of who we are. It's a national holiday, July 4th. Um, and then, of course, like Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Hamilton, they're all remembered very well. They're on our currency even. Um, and, you know two of those four I just mentioned were later presidents of the United States, but it's interesting that it's not talked about in Britain some because, you know, Britain at that time, like number one, it was the Georgian era. It was a very prominent era of British history uh, for science and learning uh, for one thing, but it was also really the first, the age of the first British empire. I mean, at at that time, you know, the the British lost the American colonies, but they still had Canada. They already had a lot of India, and um, they had Caribbean islands. Now, they weren't in Africa yet, um, but, you know, it, there was still, like, a, a, an imperial presence. And then George III is demonized in 
the United States, or he has been traditionally, but really, as far as I know, I believe that George III, at least by scholars or those who were educated on the monarchy, think think of him and think of his long reign. He's the third longest reigning British monarch as a time of peace and prosperity for Britain, you know, from like the 1770s. To, I mean, he lived, this is the crazy thing to think about. Here's a fact of the fortnight. The American Revolution kicked off in 1776. Uh, George III was still monarch um, by the time Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo um, in 1815. And that was, uh, you know, what, that would be 40 uh, some years later. Um, so that's kind of bizarre to think, you know, that he reigned for that long and saw, saw really the loss of the colonies, but then I guess Britain at its ultimate glory after Waterloo um, and Napoleon mm. defeated. And I mean, it's not like Napoleon was there for six months or a year. I mean, Napoleon was around for 15 years and Britain fought France for basically 20 straight years during that time. So um, it's kind of fascinating. But yeah. uh, we, I mean, we only really go over King George in talking about his kind of descent into madness. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the only thing we touch on. We kind of skip over the bit before we lost all his marbles and turned into a complete lunatic. Um, well, that that's the thing is, yeah, the Regency period, right? His son, Prince George, was really kind of the de facto monarch for a lot of the later reign. And w- mm-hmm. we always call him, you know, Mad King George in the United States. Like like I said. the Yeah, we do as well. Yeah, so it's a real thing. But, you know, like Georgian architecture and then like dress style like that's like you know that era of <clears throat> of architecture and how people dress with the powdered wigs and the you know the lacy frilly outfits the brick uh facades on houses and buildings like that's a very popular architecture not only in the uk but in colonial america too you go to old colonial towns and you'll see georgian architecture um mm. So I don't know. It's really interesting, and so I'm glad so I've like just I've, I've just uh, had a, a very quick search on um, the fact, and it appears that on the day of the signing, a Dunlap broadside copy of it was sent immediately, and so it's now apparently the original um, broadside that the king saw is in Richmond. It's still there in Red Richmond Palace. Uh, let's have a look. One Richmond, second. London. Yeah, Richmond, London. Not uh, Richmond, Nash- Virginia. It's in the National Archives in Richmond. Interesting. I'd have to go, and, how, go and see that. That'd be interesting. How did, yeah, how did how did it get there though? That's the I, thing. I, I don't know. It must have been a very very fast boat. <laughs> That's the only way it could have been, right? It could only have been. I mean, could you get across the Atlantic in four days back then? No, I don't know if you can get it across of it. I don't think you can get across the Atlantic now. Um, that fast. I think it takes like six or seven. Bizarre. Uh, I know. I'm looking. I'm trying to look it up. Declaration was signed. I'm trying to look this. Uh, the up. interesting. There was an interesting um, secondary fact. Is the whole joke about. Um, John Hancock writing his name, signing his name so large that the king could read it without putting glasses on. I think it's quite funny. Yeah, yeah, that that's like almost a myth, I think. Um, 
Yeah. Know, they, they say like, he was one of the first to sign, and that's why his signature is bigger. But it, but there was a lot it's, of like it, it's it's like when you when you pass a card around an office to say happy birthday to somebody <laughs> or whatever, and the first person does it does a really massive one, and then everyone else has to squeeze their names in the corners, and the further it goes around the office, the harder it becomes to write your message. It, it was it was the the most formal breakup letter of all time <laughs> <laughs> so yeah but yeah i'll report back on here once i finished it and hopefully by the next time we record i'll probably have finished it yeah two I'm more going. weeks two more weeks probably um yeah and so. you know like i i think about i have to say you know talking about king george and i told you um you have to watch the mel gibson movie the patriot it's um it's a 90s classic it's it's based on some history like his character in the movie is based on some some real life um, American patriots. Like some of the battles in the movie are were real battles, and then like the dress and stuff from that time, the uniforms, whatever. Like those are accurate, but it's you know it's a fictional story, but it's a great movie. Mm. And it's got obviously Mel Gibson. It's got Heath Ledger who plays Mel Gibson's son. Um, Chris Cooper is in it, and then um, Jason Isaacs, aka. Uh, uh, Draco Malfoy's dad. He's the villain, and he's an excellent villain. He's a sadistic British cavalry officer, um, and he he's so uh, maniacally evil and so good in that role that it, it's just a fantastic movie. And actually, Stephen, remember at King's Mountain, the grave of the British colonel that we saw, the the Ferguson guy who was killed at there? the end when we were walking down the hill. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Jason Isaac's character in that movie. The Patriot is based on that guy whose grave we saw that was killed at King's Mountain. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, no, I will have to watch it. I'll have to watch yeah, it. Yeah, his name was like uh, something Ferguson, <laughs> and then I, I I think it's like Tavington in the movie or something. Bannister, it's like Bannister Tarlington, I don't know, but it's some weird Scottish name. Um, but um, <laughs> But there's this one scene in the Patriot that, that you were, that I'll, I'll spoil for you. It's not, it's not like a plot spoiler really, but um, early in the movie. So like Mel Gibson's like this American farmer in South Carolina, and he decides that he wants to join the revolution and fight. And so he joins the continental army and there's this French officer um, that's there. And the two of them decide to go out across the countryside of South Carolina and recruit uh, soldiers and um they're like riding their horses or something along the lane and mel gibson says to the french guy he says hey i know a place we can go and they roll up to this tavern and before they go in mel gibson says well he says like watch this or something and they they walk in the door and all these like rough looking men are in there drinking and smoking and carrying on and they walk in and you know there's like this guy that's kind of rough hewn or whatever dressed with a tomahawk that's mel gibson then you've got this like very elegantly dressed french officer and all the men turn around and mel gibson says god save king george and all at once like all these men stand up and like start throwing like hatchets and knives and stuff at them and they run out and slam the door and mel gibson says found the place It's a great scene, but you know, it just makes makes me laugh. It's like, yep, they found the place they need to recruit people from. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, no, that's that's a good one. It's a good like, you know, rainy day, cold day, because it's a pretty long movie, right? So, 
it's a good one to just like kind of watch and kind of it's sort of like gladiator you know you just like kind of want to sit down and kind of dive into it um but okay cool well yeah report back on that and your next topic is what american arcadia yeah oh it's a it's a uh, very quickly wanted to mention it basically on the um on the steam deck the first game i've played on it is a really interesting game called american arcadia it's like made by a small independent studio and it's really kind of i'm finding it really engrossing and it's essentially it's a platformer slash puzzle game but it's centered around this um fictional city called american arcadia which in the universe that the game set in is a city that was created um purely so that it, it could be streamed 24 7 and people could watch you know people's lives and essentially all the people in the city aside from tourists who go in just to see it um are all prisoners it's very heavily influenced by things like the truman show and stuff like that but it's just a really awesome game it's and you basically the person that you play gets kind of accidentally discovers that um via somebody who works for the company that runs this city that his entire life he was born essentially as a prisoner in this city and it's all about trying to escape but there's so much going on in terms of twists and turns to the story and working out who to trust and whether you know everything's kind of as it seems but it's just a really inventive game some of it's like a 2d platformer and some of it is first person um and it's got some really cool mechanics in it but just the idea of like a city that's um essentially trapped in time and the way it is is that everybody who lives in arcadia um has 70s technology but they're monitored by modern technology so like the police force is really modern and they're like camera systems everywhere that monitor them but because the people are born there and were raised there they don't know any different but everybody who lives there is essentially trapped in the 70s with 70s tvs 70s clothing and stuff like that so it's a really cool dynamic it's got so many cool themes in it Um, and i'm just really looking forward to seeing how where it goes because it's as it's ramped up and i'm probably i reckon about halfway through it um it's taken some really interesting turns in terms of you um you learn a lot more about the organization that runs this city and then you learn about the lawsuits in the background that are trying to bring them down and then you learn about resistance groups that are trying to fight for the rights of the people who are born there and trying to help them escape and stuff like this. It's really interesting. Um, so I just want to mention that as a shout out because it's a really cool game. And anyone listening who plays who plays video games who might not have heard of it, it's definitely worth checking out and it's very cheap. It's only just come out, but I think I got it for like £10. It's brilliant. Really good game. I've never heard of that game, but it does sound interesting. I, I, I mean, I think I've even mentioned on here, I've not been gaming at all lately so uh, but the steam deck is very tantalizing because it's like a handheld steam basically right and with all the steam games or most of them or a lot of them or whatever mm. no it's an unbelievable it's an unbelievable bit of kit i mean it's so capable um the things that can run on it it's it's astonishing really no it's a really good it's going to get a lot of use i can tell you that on the long 7 14 hour flights that i do it's the perfect companion for something like that um but that's no, awesome. You'll get back into gaming. And actually, one of the topics I want to do in a future episode coming up is there's a game that's free about the Holocaust called Light in the Darkness, which apparently takes between an hour and two hours to complete. 
Mm-hmm. One thing I would like to do is for us to both play it. Um, it's a, it's made by a an organisation that's involved with um, one of the um, charities and foundations behind um, the you know the museums and the upkeep of concentration camps. So it's essentially it's a free educational game, but it's apparently really really good. It's a really really well made, not like some crappy you know 2D rubbish educational thing that people would use in primary school it's apparently a really interesting game but only takes an hour or two to complete so i think that'd be cool cool thing for us to do is just go and play that and then kind of feedback on here about it so maybe that'll get you an excuse to dust off the controllers this year at some point it might be i know one of my favorite games is on steam deck oblivion um if you want to go down memory lane you can download that for probably 10 pounds and play (laughs) I'm sure it's on there, yeah. I'm sure it's on there. That's one of the last games I played last year, this time mm. last year, but or played significantly. Um, topic time, shall we do it? Yeah, let's go. So I know I talk a lot about history or whatever on this podcast, but I was looking through the list of topics that we have written out, which we probably need to like update because there's some stuff on it that we've already talked about. And I was thinking, I'm like, you know, it's been so easy lately for us to have topics because it was Halloween and fall and then Thanksgiving and then Christmas. And so, you know, we haven't had to, like, kind of just pick a topic at random lately. Um, but I decided to do turning points in history because <clears throat> this is probably very thought-provoking. And as, at least for me and you, I think we can have a good discussion on turning points in history and, you know, to our listeners as well. Um, so... I wrote down a few, and by all means, these are not the only turning points in history or the only ones that I believe are turning points in history, but they are ones that I've I've thought of um, and thought of and, you know, kind of sat and pondered for a while. So um, I'm going to run through them, and Stephen, pick one or two or, or all of them that you want to talk about, um, and we can just go from there. So I wrote down Christianity— being adopted by the Roman Empire um, as after it was formally adopted by the Roman Empire by Constantine in, I think, the early 300s. It then spread even more throughout Europe. The Roman Catholic Church was created and, uh, you know, basically changed the trajectory of Europe and Western civilization at that point. Uh, Additionally, another turning point, the rise of Islam uh, in the 600s, uh, Islam spread from Arabia and spread rapidly. It, it, uh, and then of course that changed the trajectory of the Middle East, uh, North Africa, and then even parts of Europe. You know, um, and then European navigation uh, when the the Genoans, um, Genoans, right? People from Genoa, Italy. Is it Genoans or Genoans? Genoans, I would say, but I, no doubt if you're Italian, you'd pronounce it completely differently. So we'll just yeah. butcher it and apologize. Pedicini, Genovia, <laughs> probably or something. <laughs> um, yeah, so when like the, the uh, Europeans first really discovered how to navigate, um, you know, using the compass, using the stars, using better maps that came from really, you know, other parts of the world, because once 
the Portuguese and the Italians and the Spanish, and then later the British and the, the Dutch and the French just, uh, learned how to navigate. And that's what opened up the New World. That's what opened up the Horn of Africa via trade to India and China. Um, I think that was a major turning point in history. Uh, World War One was a major turning point. I feel like we've already talked about that uh, and it being a turning point in World War Two you know, being a result of World War One, And then I also put just kind of a more modern one. <clears throat> I thought about the USSR collapsing, but I don't know if that's really been as big of a turning point as we thought with just how things are with Russia and her allies today. So I said the defeat of the nationalists in China to the communists, um, you know, because nationalist China, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, were our allies in World War II, and they lost the Chinese Civil War after World War II to Mao and the communists. And since then, with the rise of China, um, I think that that was a turning point in history that's not fully resolved itself. Uh, it's still a point in history that's turning, so to speak. So those are several I wrote down. Um, which one or ones do you want to discuss, my friend? Hmm. Christianity being adopted by Rome is interesting. Um, yeah, let's start with that. It is. It is. Okay. Um, so Christian history is very interesting. Um, there aren't, uh, Jesus was undoubtedly a real person. Uh, there's enough historical evidence to verify that. Um, the most common of which comes from a Judean Roman scholar named Josephus, who was alive several decades after Jesus, and I think knew some of his compatriots in in Palestine, which is now Israel. And you know, the, in the early days, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism. Uh, Jesus was a Jew; they ne he never considered himself anything but Jewish. Jewish, he was the Messiah, um, which was part of Jewish. I guess, uh, religion. And, you know, he was the, the son of God that was prophesized to come. Um, and it was really only after Jesus's death and after Rome had put down the Jewish rebellion in the 70s AD that the Christians, basically the early Christians, broke from the rest of Judaism. You know, after after the Romans destroyed the temple, in Jerusalem, the Jew, the Jewish diaspora happened, and they spread to North Africa, to Iran, to Europe, they, to Russia, to everywhere. And that was really, I think, when Christianity really started to kind of implant itself along with the Jewish people leaving their holy land. And, you know, um, a lot of like Roman Empire emperors wrote about Christianity um, and knew of Christians, and a lot of them persecuted Christians because they were seen as just sort of like an upstart bunch, so to speak. But by the time that Constantine came around, it was a major, major religion, and he became a Christian himself and adopted it as the first or as the religion of the Roman Empire, replacing Roman Greco-Roman religion. Uh, and at that point, I would say with it being sanctioned by the most powerful entity in the world that really helped it spread even further and then helped it solidify because after Rome fell, you know, somebody on a Joe Rogan podcast said recently that 
really the Roman Empire just became the Roman Catholic Church. All the money and the power and the influence just kind of morphed into this powerful church, you know, the Pope and the Papal States and that which exists to this day. And I find that very interesting, too. Um, so I think that that would be a turning point because it's like what if if Christianity had never spread, if it had never broken off from Judaism, um, would we be pagan? Would we be Jewish or would we be Muslim? Um, because it was really Christianity that united a lot of the Central Europeans together to defeat the Ottoman Turks at Vienna in the Middle Ages and push back the wave of Islamic migration and spread into Europe. So it kind of leaves you or leaves me to think, and I wonder what you think with this synopsis, you know, where would we be without Christian influence, without Christian morality, without the Christian church or, you know, and now there's multiple sects of Christianity because, you know, we, we are both from technically Protestant nations, you know, not Catholic nations. And it makes me, makes me think like how different would it be had Christianity not spread, had it, had it not been adopted by Rome. Um, so I know that was probably a lot. And I know, I know you're not as studied up on this, but, um, but yeah. It'd be interesting to know how different the level of anti-Semitism would have got to. Yeah. And you know, because that's a major, that's a major thread that kind of essentially um, stems from this, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, anti-Semitism is nothing new. I mean, Martin Luther, who in Germany, who basically created Protestantism, was an anti-Semite, so to speak. Um, Edward I, the Longstreet's of England, uh, you know, the guy that fought Braveheart, uh, another Mel Gibson movie, famously expelled all the Jews from England in the 1200s. Uh, there were pogroms in Eastern Europe on and off again. It was really Napoleon, who it looks like we'll talk about later with your topic, that really came into European cities and liberated Jews and, you know, broke apart Jewish ghettos and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, there's so many, you could talk about this topic, just even this part of this topic for hours, because there's an infinite number of ways the world could have gone because clearly, you know, Christianity and its influence on the Roman empire is enormous in terms of the chronology and factually what actually happened because without it and without the just the constant you know conflicts that have occurred since then generally down to religion and christianity often being on one side of it it's amazing to think how many would have been avoided or how many would have been radically different had like you say christianity not broken away from judaism we will never yeah. know, but it, 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 how could you possibly in <laughs> try and work it out? It's just it's so it's so broad, isn't it? And it's such a bedrock of our civilization. And you you know you can be religious or you can not be religious, but it doesn't really matter because you know monogamy, the family, morality, like everything that's embedded into us is Christian, and it makes you wonder, you know how 
different it would be now you know human nature of course it would still probably go very wrongly <laughs> like if, if there was something else besides christianity oh yeah um, there would have been you know but it's, it's interesting to think Stephen, that our you know our northern european ancestors our british ancestors were at one time pagans you know they were they were worshiping um celtic gods and it's like you know and then probably Roman gods to an extent when Britain was a colony of Rome and <clears throat> and then you know Christianity came and and ebbed and flowed for a while but ultimately stuck around and it, it's fascinating because like you know it influenced the Crusades um, and like I said it stopped the Ottoman Empire at its zenith from pushing further into Europe I mean the Ottoman tide was broken at Vienna Austria you know they were pushing into Europe. And the the, um, the Arab uh, Muslims had actually also spread from Spain into France. And one of the, I think it was like Pepin the Short or one of the early French kings. What a name, right? Pepin the Short. Um, he uh, <laughs> he and his army in, in southern France, like near Bordeaux. No, not near Bordeaux. It'd be on the Mediterranean, maybe near Marseille, defeated you know, a Muslim army there, that would have been another small turning point. So it's just interesting to think it's like, it was such a uniter for people. Um, but. And, and the other thing is, so are these, so the five you've got written down, are they your top five turning points in history that you think are the most impactful or like, is, is this just five you wanted to talk about? Or is this your conclusion as to these are the five biggest turning points in history? I would say there are five, significant turning points it's hard for me to narrow down well because there's so many it's all like a well the whole of history as itself is one series of dominoes isn't it it's interesting what you've pointed out because i'm i'm intrigued that you've put world war one and then not mentioned i don't know if i'm thinking later on would you put operation barbarossa or pearl harbor the atomic bomb the atomic bomb itself i think essentially pearl harbor and the americans essentially getting involved in the war changed the outcome for me yeah everything i've read and studied points back to that or you know the stupidity of the germans trying to invade russia and for that matter you could go back a lot further and say and topically for my topic is Napoleon thinking he could go and and invade Russia. That didn't go very well, did it? <laughs> no, no. And yeah, it it's it like I said, you know, and I could Just probably have one one, one the biggest lesson we've all learned. Don't invade Afghanistan, don't invade Russia, it never works. <laughs> if yeah. if we could all just calm down and stop trying that, we'd all be fine. <laughs> Yeah, and, and those places are great to live in, you know, because invasions never work. Go live in Afghanistan or Russia. <laughs> mm. yeah. um, you know, and the, the Christianity one like that, um, that was as early back as I wanted to go because, you know, you could say, oh, when when man, fi- you know, when man figured out you know, fire. Or yeah, I was just going to say, when the flint like, came out. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's like no shit, you know, it's like, yeah, but it's. Yeah. It has to be more significant than that. Um, and I was thinking like back to the Greeks and stuff, but I was like, well, I'll just tie like the Greeks and Romans into one thing. Basically and the same, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's funny because like the, um, you know, the Romans largely adopted Greek ways of life. And then Roman Catholicism is 
largely based on a lot of, I guess, Roman religion. Um, and the whole point of Protestantism, Protestantism was to kind of bring Christianity back to it not being a Roman religion, you know, and not worshiping saints and the Virgin Mary and so like a multiple gods, so to speak, because, you know, you got to think if you're if you're pitching Christianity to a bunch of pagans who believe in a hundred different gods, it's like, oh, yeah, you can worship this saint who believes in this. And, you know, and that was that was that, I guess. But, um, you know, interesting fact, you'll, you'll find this mm. interesting because I have read up on Christian history some because it is interesting. And, you know, like there's Christian communities all throughout the Middle East. Um, but Armenia was the first country to adopt Christianity as its religion in like the 200s or something. It was before Rome. Um, and of course, Armenia is still around today. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, like back when the Silk Road was the main highway of commerce in the world, linking China to Europe, um, Christianity spread very, very early to China. And there were there were Christians in China at the time of the Roman Empire. They were called like Nestorian Christians, and they're not around anymore. There's Ch- There's Christians in China, but this movement died out. It was a very early form. And but believe it or not, a lot of the Mongols were Christians as well. You know, you wouldn't think of Mongolians being Christian, but they they're, they're, they were um, because it had spread all across the Silk Road. And, you know, like some of Genghis Khan's sons, I believe, were, in fact, Christians. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's I like religious history because it I mean, it's history and it kind of it's kind of just something you have to kind of be educated on to study history. But. I, I like I like that turning point. Um, and, you know, Constantine, it's like he became a Christian. Like he says, he had like a vision of a cross, I think, before a battle and became a Christian. But you also wonder that he just become a Christian because of the rising tide <laughs> of the religion in his in his empire. Like, you know, to be on kind of the winning side, so to speak, it's we'll never know. But um, um but, you know, I guess I'd like to also mention the rise of Islam. Um, and you might not know as much about this either, but basically um, in the 600s, the Eastern Roman Empire was still around, otherwise known as the Byzantine Empire, out of Constantinople, named after the aforementioned Constantine. And the Persians, who were Zoroastrian, which was like the religion, the monotheistic religion of Persia since ancient times, the Persians and the Romans had fought each other. The Greeks slash Romans had fought the Persians for literally 1,000 years. Um, Their empires were up against each other in what's now Turkey, Armenia. You know, they pushed each other. It was like kind of a seesaw, like one would go one way, one would go the other, right? Well, it's so interesting to study this part of world history, and not enough people talk about it, because basically in the 600s, the Persians and the Eastern Romans had fought each other to exhaustion, right? They had kind of been – they kind of like settled their last war into a stalemate, but at the same time, Islam was rapidly spreading up through Arabia and the Middle East. And so you have these two world power empires 
at absolute exhaustion of fighting one another. And then just by happenstance, Islam, Muhammad and his descendants are spreading up north, right? And they conquer and convert Persia, the Zoroastrians, very quickly. And to this day, Iran is a Muslim country for the most part. You know, there are Christians and some Zoroastrians and some Jews still in in Iran, but conquers them pretty quickly. And then basically is on the frontiers of Eastern Rome um, for the next 800 years. And then, of course, the Arabs, the Seljuks are replaced with the Ottoman Turks who converted to Islam and so forth. And the Turks ultimately defeat the Eastern Roman Empire in 1453. But it kind of like I, I see that as a turning point, too, in history, because you look at, you know, it's like, well, what if the Persians and the Romans didn't hate each other? What if they said, hey, we need to defeat these like Arab horsemen? You know, or like, what if Rome had absolutely defeated the Persians and then defeated, you know, and warning, like, what if one side wasn't exhausted, so to speak, and Islam was squelched in an early phase? And then, you know, it was just that was it. There was there'd be no Islam in North Africa, you know, because at that time, I mean, Lebanon, Syria, North Africa, especially Egypt were Christian. Um, and it makes you think, too, it's like, hmm, like if Islam had never spread or at least spread into Africa and Middle East and parts of Europe, how different would the world be? Um, mm. You know, would it have pushed on into India with the Mughals? Probably, maybe. Um, so I don't know. Um, so I don't know. Um, I like that. And actually, I just I, ha- I got a book for Christmas on the Eastern Roman Empire that just came out, and I'm looking forward to reading it and kind of studying up more on that topic um Mm. it's part it's 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 a ponderous thing to study isn't it you know yeah yeah and it's so vast (laughs) it's one of those it's one it's a time period that when you you know as we've we've talked about it on and off on this podcast a lot is the roman empire is so vast it's it's not the theatrical you know what you characterize rome as it it was hundreds of years of evolution and it's amazing how far it spreads into history and the effects it had once Rome fell. So it's, I need to revisit it because we did Rome, I think for probably a year or two at school and, but to no great detail. So it's another thing that I need to really kind of get on top of and is kind of on my list of periods in history that I would like to know more about that I have a basic knowledge of but don't have the you know the the depth and wealth of knowledge that you do by any stretch of the imagination because it is fascinating and it it had such an impact on you know the modern world essentially yeah <clears throat> for sure um and you know your european navigation is a whole other topic um which ironically enough you know the chinese were much more advanced with compasses and maps and navigation than than the europeans were and then that knowledge spread to the muslim countries who were much more advanced than europe and then ultimately that knowledge spread to europe And like once the Italians and the Portuguese started figuring out how to, you know, 
in addition to making bigger vessels that could sail further and be at sea longer and withstand, you know, heavier storms and that sort of thing, once they figured out how to, I mean, just think about it, man, like going from Portugal to North America on a couple hundred foot wooden boat that would take months. Like these people were crazy, <laughs> mm. <laughs> like crazy. I mean, <laughs> No, and, it's it's nuts, isn't it? And you just have to think about the amount of human beings that moved from Europe and then also from Africa by enslavement moved yeah. on these wooden ships that were powered by sails. Um, yeah. Um, like, think about how many people. I mean, there were three million people in the 13 colonies in 1776. Three million people already, and Jamestown had only been founded in 1607 or 8. I mm. mean, <laughs> that's crazy to think about. And, yeah, it really is. It really and, is. And, you know, like you read about like the Columbian Exchange and like the diseases and the foods, and then, you know, not only, you know, not only the culture and the people and the way of life and that sort of thing, but like the the food and the animals and the diseases that spread it's it's insane you well, know? In, the, in the in the book in killing england which was quite interesting as they were talking about um parliament early stages of the american revolution and there being a kind of brief movement to stop parliamentary recess in the first year of the american revolution so that the king wouldn't have essentially a free range to free reign to make all these major political military decisions without parliament from having sort of giving them any scrutiny but essentially most of the ministers thought london such a miserable place to be in the summer because there was no public sanitation <laughs> and it was just such a smelly disease ridden place that none of them wanted to be there over the summer so they all just or they all just fled <laughs> and came back and kind of just left george to his own devices uh, no wonder he went mad he was telling people <laughs> Smelling ass. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. That's funny. Um, yeah, and I mean, the American Revolution was a turning point in history too. You know, like think if oh, uh, yeah. you know if the colonies had stayed loyal, we'd be a dominion like Canada at best, maybe, and we wouldn't be a superpower, maybe either. You know, it's it's interesting how that 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 could be a whole discussion as well. Um, World War One, we've talked about a lot, so I'll skip that. Uh, go listen to our earlier episodes if you want to learn more on that one. That might have been our first episode, actually, um, where I talked about that. But uh, briefly, and then we'll jump to your topics. Uh, you know, like I said a minute ago, China. Uh, you know, the nationalists being defeated by the communists, uh, the nationalists fl fled to Taiwan, and mm -hmm. Taiwan eventually evolved into a fully functioning democracy which it is today and just about yeah yeah let's let's well by let's the time this is by the time this is published it might not be <laughs> but let's hope that it still is but um you know it, it's just I, I i sit and think i'm like wow wow like imagine a a powerfully democratic friendly china you know like a giant japan or south korea and yeah. It kind of makes me sad because it's like, wow, if, if we had them in our fold, you know, we'd be dealing with a recalcitrant Russia and the Middle East. And 
that'd be pretty much it, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it, would, yeah. it, would, it would solve a lot of the world's problems from our point of view. Um, well, the, the making of the modern Chinese Communist Party has is it feels like it's having an increasing impact on the world with time. It feels like we're just we're kind of still it's still early days in terms of the amount of impact it's having because the relationships internationally between China and the rest of the world have evolved and changed so much. And actually, China has been brought out of its shell more on more than one occasion, hasn't it? But the the further we get into this, and the longer that party has a a stranglehold over its people, and you know, waves its political influence um, over places like Hong Kong, and I'm sure they'll invade Taiwan at some point. Um, it's amazing just how that country has changed and how much of an effect it's having now that it's kind of got this really it's it's kind of a, a Frankenstein's monster of a country isn't it because the economy's all over the place in one hand it's really strong and there's and there's been major growth in recent years but people have never been poorer in certain parts of the country there's never been such a gap between rich and poor for a communist country which is amazing and yet you've got a country which doesn't really know doesn't really know what it wants to be anymore i don't think yeah because it's trying to act as an international superpower it's trying to modernize it's trying to you know hold international political clout and get involved in international relations and geopolitics but it's also very insular and very nationalist and actually would rather be you know isolated from the rest of the world or at least that's the way that the the impression that i've always got when i've traveled to china is that they really don't you know on a on the ground level they're very isolationist but yeah at the same time the way they project themselves internationally is a very different picture isn't it it's it's very weird and it's not real communism um you know it's like the worst of both worlds it's like a, yeah because it's the worst of nationalism and communism <laughs> it's, it's it's terrible um, I think it's interesting because, you know, they're having a population crisis. Like, they're saying by 2100 now that China's population will be down to half a million, and it's currently at, like, 1.8 billion. Like, they can't – they're not having it will, enough – It will ba- never get to that level. They're not having enough babies, and there's nothing no. they can do about it. I mean, that was irregulated, and they did kind of bring it on themselves, but at that point – I guess they felt they had no choice because their population was growing so rapidly out of control that they had to do something about it. But it's backfired enormously, and the economy is now so it's and such an aging economy. And the way and the ours is as well, but on a much smaller scale. And I imagine it's the same in America as it is here, is that people are living longer and people aren't having as much kids. But in China, it's had an enormous effect because of their industrial clout. Yeah, because they're so in, they're, they rely so much on industry and. I mean, their government's pumped up by so much money. You know, they've devalued their currency to the point where they've just, I guess, printed money to the extent that it's almost like a balloon that's just going to burst. And, you know, I think if China's economic balloon bursts, it's going to probably be a net positive for the world because it's going to weaken them and hopefully withdraw their global aspirations but it's something that we would feel the effect from because there'll be a lot of short-term pain because we rely on them so heavily yeah exactly um it's very it's very fascinating um to think about and to 
to study. Like I said when I started this segment, it's a will a turning point that's still turning. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's really bizarre. I know. Bizarre. I know. Um, let's move on to your topic, shall we? Yeah, we've reached the hour mark. Good grief. So I think we'll probably spend a little bit less time so that I can be in bed before one o'clock in the morning. Um, (laughs) so i wanted to talk about movies because i've been to the cinema a couple of times since we last spoke so i went um in christmas week to see wonka and see the last of the last opportunities to see napoleon before it finished in the cinema i know you saw it when just after it came out well it's now down to one showing a day only a handful of cinemas in the country so i managed to just about scrape it and see it um i'll start with wonka went into wonka thinking no idea what to expect from this. Um, very vaguely knew it was a prequel to, essentially a prequel to the Gene Wilder movie. Um, and that was it. I had no expectations at all. Knew that it was going to be radically different to the Johnny Depp one that came out in the early 2000s, which was okay, but was never going to match the genius of the original um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie. Um, and I've got to say, I was blown away by Wonka, really blown away. I went in with no expectations, as I say, and was so surprised at how good it was. I walked out there with a massive smile on my face. What an amazing film! The the acting superb. The um, I can't remember his name. The actor who plays um, the younger Wonka is absolutely staggering. Timothy Chalamet. He's a brilliant actor. Don't think I've ever properly seen him in anything in a leading role before. And he was captivating. He he played a really interesting interpretation of the character Wonka. The music was fantastic. The cast for the sort of surrounding characters was brilliant. Um, I thought the the storyline of the monopoly between the major chocolate companies um, that essentially tried to shut Wonka down and essentially led to the chocolate factory eventually being built from the first film was a really interesting angle to explore and it was just a really it was a feel-good movie had fantastic songs um it was really funny in places it was very witty and clever and just yeah couldn't have expected anything more from it you know it was an awesome film and a real surprise so i'll i'll say that about wonka uh, and then went a couple of days later to see Napoleon, which I went into expecting a, a very good film. And I'm sure this will come and turn into an interesting debate because I'm sure we'll have very different opinions on it. And walked away, you know, having really enjoyed it. Not the best film I've ever seen. Neither was Wonka, but really enjoyed Napoleon. Um, and I'm guessing you'll have more to say on Napoleon than Wonka because I'm not sure you've seen Wonka, have you? Yeah, um, I saw it. Oh, you saw Wonka? No, 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 I'm sorry. I, I've i not paid much attention to the Wonka movie, honestly, but I'm glad to hear that it's good. The, the original one, and even the one with Johnny Depp, I liked. Um, mm. Never read the book, but... Um, well, the, book, the book's amazing. I, oh, wow, I've read a book you've not read. There we go. <laughs> well, you are British. I mean, it's, it's real <laughs> it is required. It is required reading at school for, for English kids. Um, but... Oh, I would definitely go and see Wonka if you're at a loose end and it's still on. I mean, I imagine it is. It's only just come out. Really, really fun film for an hour and a half. 
excuse me, oh, I just yawned. Um, it's getting late here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yo, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's past your bedtime, mate. I know, I know. Um, it is. Uh, no, that's uh, that's good to hear you report that it was good. Um, but I guess we can talk more about Napoleon too, since I've seen that, and I think we might have different opinions on how that movie was. Mm. Go on then, rinse it. Well, I was like Ridley Scott, Joaquin Phoenix. This is going to be like Gladiator. This is going to be the Napoleon movie that we've always wanted. There's never really been a good Napoleon movie. Um, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Um, I left that movie a little disappointed, I have to say. Um, I thought the costumes and the battle scenes and the musical score were all great. But I felt like the acting, kind of the fictionalized version of events, um the shortness the skipping over of a lot of events and just kind of the goofiness of the movie really threw me off it it shocked me that a ridley scott movie could be so you know unridley scotty i guess you could say (laughs) it's oddly light-hearted in places isn't it yeah it's it's oddly light-hearted um and i actually i saw it over thanksgiving with my parents when i was home and i think my mom actually liked it more than my dad and i did and she doesn't normally like movies like that. Um, so, mm. yeah, that that's kind of like I didn't hate it. You know, I'm not like it's the worst thing ever. Don't go see it. But it left me a little bit wanting more. Um, mm. Which is I, the, the problem is the reason the, the more I've let this marinate and the more I've thought about it since seeing it is the biggest problem with it is you can't possibly take the entire history of Napoleon Bonaparte and convert it into a three hour film. Well, and, and said, satisfy everybody because it's, it's so broad. It covers such a long period. It t- covers decades and decades. You either have to focus on a minute part of it, or you make some ludicrously long film or series. It probably would have worked better as a series, in my opinion. I thought that. Well, somebody said that it should they should do like a crown style or a the crown style uh TV show about Napoleon. Yeah. I'd watch it. There's so many phases of his life, you know, there's the French Revolution phase, there's the phase of him being a general in Italy and Egypt, then mm. there's the phase where he becomes emperor and then there's the phase where he gets deposed and then the Waterloo, phase, you know, and there's there's so much to it. Yes. So yeah, yeah. So you you could never you have to if you're Ridley Scott and you're tasked with making this into a movie and trying to keep it to any sort of sensible length you have to skip stuff you can't you couldn't possibly get too into the weeds on it um, so chronologically it's it jumps around it doesn't jump around but it jumps forward a lot it takes leaps and bounds doesn't it um, and quickly all all of a sudden it's you know, certain parts are skipped by essentially narration and short um, lines of subtitles. But, yeah, it just isn't – it's too broad a topic to cover in that length of time, which I'm interested because Ridley Scott has said, apparently, that there is a four-and-a-half-hour-long director's cut that he's going to release. And I would be well down for that because I was captivated by it. And, unfortunately, when I was watching the cinema, I missed about an hour of it because I had to take a call from work that I couldn't, that I couldn't skip. So I had to stand outside in just at the point where um, 
it was just I missed basically an hour from the point where he was starting to lose his relationship um, um, with uh, Josephine and um, there was the doubt as to whether he would be able to father a son and I missed that hour essentially during the middle of the film but while I was in the film and the, most of the film that I did see I, I was just captivated by it I thought it was so well shot I thought it was so well produced um, the battle scenes were spectacular they were never going to be accurate it's not a documentary so I didn't go into it with you know I didn't leave it disappointed at the sort of glaring inaccuracies that were here there and everywhere in it but I really it's art isn't it and I'm always intrigued in especially if you're trying to put across a character or a a, a figure like Napoleon to a big screen audience how do you portray the man? Because there's no footage of the guy and it's all down to interpretation through um, primary and secondary sources that we've had since since his reign. And it's interesting to see how someone like Ridley Scott would interpret him and want to portray him on, on screen. And I thought Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon was fascinating to watch because there was so much nuance to his to his interpretation of him. And there'll be many disagreements I'm sure as to the type of character he was and the way that um, Joaquin kind of plays him. But I found, I found his performance really intriguing because it's, it, as the film went on, I became more and more interested with the Napoleon that we saw outside of the battles than I did when we were going into the sort of major conflicts of his time. And I actually thought the, the best parts of the movie were the slower, dialogue-heavy, relationship-building elements of it, which, I'm, which I would imagine are the bits that you took most disappointment in. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, just, like, kind of making so many characters be so foppish, like, you know, Napoleon himself and... I thought Josephine's actress, I thought that she was portrayed very well. Um, <clears throat> Rose Pierre, I thought was goofy, you know, but I don't know. It was, it was okay. I, I'm not in a hurry to watch it again. Whereas something like Gladiator, I'll watch all the time, like when it's on. So. What's the, but what's the difference? Gladiator is just as action heavy and just as, you know, it's a very fictionalized, stylized version of Rome, isn't it? Yeah, and I think because it's fictionalized, that's why it's better, because Napoleon tried to probably be a little bit too fictional. And, I mean, Gladiator is a very serious movie, and I think when you're going to have a movie about something as serious as, you know, a gladiator leading a rebellion against the Roman Empire or about one of the largest figures in human history you've got to have a serious tone um to kind of give the movie enough credibility because if not it's just going to be too unbalanced i think you know i don't know i mean i get what you're saying but but you also missed an hour of the movie yeah i I need to watch it again but i really but 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 what i will say is that i need to i'm really i need to watch watch it in full again but i really want to watch it because you know, I saw what the what was it the remaining 
two hours of it and loved pretty much every minute of it um didn't you know I, I actually don't mind the fact that it was a little bit humorous in places and it was quite quirky and that napoleon was kind of he came across as quite eccentric yeah because it's it's it was just a really interesting portrayal of that time period the visuals of it were amazing and it's what's Ridley Scott trying to tell us about that time period. What's he trying to tell us about Napoleon? And actually, he he came across as a very different character to how you would how you would interpret him from anything you've read. And I thought that just thought that was interesting because it's a different take on his personality. Because I think every, most people who know anything about Napoleon kind of have an idea going in what they expect him to be like. Don't you think? And I yeah. don't think I don't think Joaquin Phoenix went straight down the line of of portraying Napoleon in the very generalistic terms that we, you know, when we generalise Napoleon, what do we think of him like? You know, somebody with a short man complex, um, ruthless, hot headed, <laughs> ready to explode at any point. Um, and actually, the Napoleon in the movie, we don't get much of that. And actually, I thought that was part of the genius of it is the fact that it's so different and it kind of took it took me aback you know i was kind of taken aback by it but at the same time i quite enjoyed it mm-hmm. yeah i mean i definitely enjoyed a lot of it um i did i will say it was funny how like the french or you know i don't know who it was in france somebody i guess prominent came out and blasted the movie and Ridley Scott replied back and said, shut up. You guys just hate yourselves anyway. So what's it matter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got a point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought that was pretty. Cla- I classic. You, you made a good observation when you said, I think that is a little bit like death of Stalin. Oh and yeah. I did actually it's that. a really good comparison because although it's not an Armando Iannucci film in a sense that it's not, overly humorous and overly satirical there's elements of that where there's these odd awkward moments and weird exchanges of dialogue and it occasionally does make you chuckle in parts that you wouldn't expect it to and the fact that a lot of the characters were played straight down the line no attempts at accents and things like that. that's a very Inucci way of going about things but then Ridley Scott in Gladiator nobody was speaking Italian were they they all had British accents exactly or, or American so it's, yeah, it's typical um, right yeah exactly so it's it's to be expected but I quite do kind of find that interesting sometimes I, I love Defa Stalin I'll make no no mistake about it I Defa Stalin actually is one of the best comedies for me of the last 10 20 years i anytime it's on tv i can't turn it off i've got to watch it sit down and write that's it even if i'm already to the point where you know the uh, state funeral's happening I'm, <laughs> i've got to watch to the end i actually love that film um and actually the fact that napoleon has elements of that made me like it more that's I a do, good yeah. movie sorry i didn't mean to no 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 so yeah it's interesting we've got different opinions on it but i would imagine that I knew while I was watching, I was like, oh, Daniel's probably was biting his nails at this, watching, <laughs> watching him, watching him invade Egypt. Um, I, I was, was like, like oh. wait, what happened to the Italian invasion? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But um, yeah, I'll be interested to see what the four-hour version of it's like. I'm definitely going to watch it when it comes out because I do want to see what the deleted scenes were, how much, you know, how much of the blanks were filled in. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it was great. I really, I really liked it. So that's my topic. That's good. That's good. Um, well, top three, bottom three. Um, well, we have another uh, Brian submission. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Yeah, he always emails us, and he always says, "Evening, fellas." We well, always says to us and Becky. And uh, for the record, Becky just has the Instagram. She doesn't have access to the email. We don't give her full privileges. Um, <laughs> but, anyways, evening, Brian. Thanks for another topic. This is a good one, Brian. We appreciate it. Um, Brian here again. Here's a submission for a top three, bottom three, since it's the new year. Top three things you are most hopeful for this year and bottom three silliest slash worst New Year's resolutions you've ever heard of or have made yourselves. Keep up the good work, exclamation point. All right. Um, My top three for this year. Uh, No more heartbreak. That's a good one for me. No more heartbreak. That's a resolution I hope to have this year. And maybe this time next year, I'll be saying that was a silly resolution. <laughs> so <laughs> it, might, it might be on the other side. Well, you and me both. You never know. Yeah, you, you <laughs> never know. Um, read 55 or more books. I read 55 books in 2023. I'm going to read at least that many this year. I'm determined to. I have far too many books and things to study that I want to – that. Uh, you know, it's a prioritization of mine. Um, and then keep the trend up of seeing new places. I'm going to Boston in April, so that'll be a new place. Hopefully I can see a few new more. Every year it seems like I see a new place. So those are my three. What are your three? And then we'll go to the bottom three. Uh, mine is to have a year of career stability because every year for the last four years I have changed job and I'm bored of changing job every year and not getting settled before having to uproot my entire life so i'm hoping i can get through the entire year without changing um you know direction on my career path so that's kind of a name um second is to read 20 books far more modest than you but that would be i think the most books i've ever read in a year Um, not counting university where i basically had to live in the library for a few years so I'm going to try and read. I read 12 last year and 20 is my aim. And I'm almost at the point where I'm looking at hopefully doing two books this month already and getting ahead of the game. Uh, and then third is to lose weight because it wouldn't be a New Year's resolution without you trying to lose some weight. <laughs> That's right, baby. The gyms are full right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, going to New York, man, that's so brutal. I was walking I 30,000 steps or steps a day and still put on loads of weight. I know. I mean, I know. it's just it's just going. And the worst thing about it, the start of this year is going to be a nightmare. I'm in America for most of January. February, I'm in I'm in uh, the UAE for most of it. And then in March, I'm back in America again. So I'll probably look like uh, Augustus Gloop. To, um, you'll, you'll look like to, a chic yeah. Augustus Gloop. I'll, I'll look... <laughs> horrendous by the time we get to easter and then the yeah. eggs come out brilliant they're gonna have to give you a uh special Stomach seat pump. belt <laughs> yeah well you know what you're eating when you come to see me in march a cookout tray with a corn dog <laughs> yeah boy yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, um, bottom three, I don't have a bottom three, and here's why. Um, I think resolutions in general are silly. Um, I never like to set the new year as a benchmark to better myself. I try to be better constantly and every day. Um, I just, I guess you could say I have consistent goals of which I carry over from year to year and things to work on and improve upon. So I don't say, oh, it's January 1st. I guess I better stop eating pizza. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't, I couldn't think of any three silly ones. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not even going to venture to say, but do you have a bottom three for this topic, Stephen? I don't really, because I'm kind of similar to you. Not that I think they're stupid or anything, because, you know, if people use it as a motivation in January to to, cha- to make a change, then by all means, go right ahead. But I've never really been the sort of person that's actually made a news resolution formally and stuck to it. I know a lot of people do dry January or they try and go to the gym and stuff like that. But I've never been one to set a goal in January. The only thing like that I've ever done was I did Lent once with Carolyn and we challenged ourselves to not eat chocolate for Lent. Um, just to see if we could do it rather than, oh, let's try and lose some weight. Um, and I actually did it. And uh, I actually found that after, I think, probably about. 20 days the want to have dessert and chocolate all the time does pass when you have it for a certain when you don't have it for a certain amount of time there is something to that if you if you just stop having it eventually you get to point where you don't want it anymore and so it was quite interesting so I probably when we get close to the wedding should do something similar to that yeah that'd be good that'd be good um I never knew you did Lent that's interesting um yeah me being um such a a religious human um <laughs> you know is most most of the time i'm really busy and people are, oh where's steven oh he's busy praying that's what i'm doing yeah you pray 10 hours a day <laughs> well i don't know i don't think i've ever done lit that's funny <laughs> so i don't know I, I think it's sort of like one of those things where it's like you're you're religious and you don't know it or something it's like the jo- the joke's on you steven <laughs> yeah god you think i would have noticed by now no i, I honestly i wouldn't have <laughs> oh all right well i think that's a wrap for episode 20 don't you yeah it's been awesome Really good to you. We're going to have to. It's going to be interesting trying to work out how to do it next time because the next time we're going to record, I'm going to be in America, so the time's going to be better. But in terms of my movements, God help me, it's going to be busy. But I'll yeah. have to find some time on um on an evening in uh Florida when I'm at Daytona. We'll work it out. This one's Pack going your up. Pack microphone. What? Yeah, this one's actually going up today my time, which is quite scary. So I'll have to take my microphone to america with me um and yeah we'll find the time we'll work it out we always do well thanks everybody for listening um i'm your host daniel greer and of course with me stephen kilby this concludes the 20th episode of the neither here nor there podcast we will see you next time don't forget to submit questions top three bottom three like subscribe tell your friends tell your grandmother all that uh stephen it's been a pleasure as always my friend yeah, an absolute pleasure, Daniel. Happy New Year and Happy New Year to um, our listeners out there. Thanks for supporting us. We've been doing this for 40 weeks now, which is really scary. Um, and we're oh. looking forward to plenty more. 
episodes to come this year. We so, are yeah, beyond the gestation touch. period of a female human. Yeah, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a fad now. It's a lifestyle. So that's right. Hey, buckle up, son. That's right. <laughs> All right. See you, bud. Speak to you soon. Bye. <laughs>